it's only an hour today. Uh, Jordan is out, so I made a call to the bullpen called Chris. I, I love doing shows with Chris because Chris and I have been friends for, you know, 25, 30 years now. Sometimes I do feel like we're doing a show for an audience of two, but uh, who cares? It's our show. We can do whatever we want. Uh, do you like that video I sent you guys, by the way, Chris, before before we get started? Uh, I, uh, I I hadn't had a chance to open it. I, I just got back from the gym and had was kind of just setting up. But uh, I'll I'll let I'm you assuming, know. I'm assuming that it's it's a it's a fatherhood highlight. Of some I'll, sort. I'll, I just gotta let you know ahead of time. Uh, I had to let I had to let the wife in on this bit um, because I've kind of convinced my daughter that the chicken song by Roger Allen Wade is a kid's song. When it's, eh, you know, it's it's fair enough. It's clean enough. It's probably the cleanest thing Roger Allen Wade has. So. You know, la- this morning while, you know, my daughter's eating her strawberry waffle for breakfast, I, I can say stuff like, uh, like, uh, hey, bug, the chicken doesn't worry about nothing but clucking. And she follows with the price of eggs today. Does, so, she, does she did she learn the proper way to spell eggs by any chance? It's in the video. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's spoil it. It's in the video. I would let the wife in on that one because I, I still feel I told you about the gobbles thing, right? Maybe. Okay, yeah, Charlotte had a project for Thanksgiving where they had to take a turkey but disguise it as another animal, but you still had to be able to tell it was a turkey, right? So she did a poodle, and it's like all these cotton balls, and yeah, my wife loves the artistic stuff. So they do like, and put like a little collar on it, some beads, and do a little collar for, oh, so it's like a poodle turkey. Okay, but you can still tell it's a turkey. And she's like, uh, Tamara's like, well, you think you should name it? And Charlotte can't think of a name. I was like, how about you name it Gobbles? And Tamara's like, oh, that's cute. We'll name it Gobbles. And I didn't have the heart to tell the wife that. Yeah, except for the South Park episode where Timmy picked out the, the turkey that wasn't quite right. And, <laughs> but that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll roll with it anyway. Hey, speaking on that conversation we had with Wags and Rodney before we get started, did your native state ever fix that problem with their beer? Like, are they serving beer that has some potency now? Oh yeah, yeah. They uh, so the three two law. I, I'm guessing like seven or eight years ago went away because uh, the Schnapps I mean, night, the three two law. There was no three two law. It was like drinking water. It, yeah, but I mean, we were drinking uh, what what amounted to Everclear <laughs> and cinnamon and, and with red hots melted into it. So yeah, yeah. Made in, uh, yeah, dude. I don't know. Uh, there. I, I really wish there was a way to contextualize the, the best Greg story involving the NCAA football game, but it just, it, it would take too long and it just wouldn't work. Um, yeah, Jack, it's in Oklahoma. Chris was born in Oklahoma, but got to Texas as, uh, as soon as he could. Um, and that's not a joke, really. Chris did get to Texas. As as he made a pit stop in LaGrange before uh, he, he got to Florence and that's where Chris and I uh, became friends. And I've, like I said, I've known Chris for almost 30 years now. Um, so yeah, it's good to know that in next time I'm in Oklahoma and I want a beer, it's not going to be like drinking, you know, watered down beer. So it's good. To yeah, know. you can. Uh, there, there's actually a couple of uh, breweries that have opened up, so you can, you can get more than just the uh, piss, uh, piss warm yeah. white you were drinking back then. You realize, uh, you realize, you almost went Jake Taylor at the at the cocktail party. Like, yeah, got real uniforms and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Still a real team. Um, I wanted to talk, I, I wanted to bring you on, Chris. Number one, because Jordan was out today, and like I said, I needed to make a call to the bullpen. But I got to go over these SEC coach rankings, and like, it's so I love doing a show with you because twenty years ago, when Chris and I were taking way too long on lunch breaks when we worked at the newspaper, like this is stuff that we would over like a, a bowl of queso, like would just sit down and talk about this stuff. 
But I'm going to just run this down, Chris. I got Brad Crawford. Uh, Chris, you're on the CBS side now. Brad Crawford's a 24-7 sports on the national that's, desk. That's a, that's a good friend of mine, yeah. I, yeah. I know doing, doing a great job. Some time. Um, so pretty much now that there's 16 teams in the SEC, when we do things like coaches' rankings, you can break them up into quarters and tiers, and I kind of like that. So, Chris, without further ado, I'll just run it down. Some of these don't need explanation. Like the bottom tier, I think it's kind of self-explanatory. Uh, the bottom four coaches in the league, Clark Lee at Vanderbilt, which I don't think Clark Lee is a bad football coach, but somebody's got to be last. Uh, Jeff Lebby, he's not last because at least Jeff Lebby doesn't have any any bad things against him at this point in terms of his head coaching record at Mississippi State. Although I mean, I do wonder, like, do Mississippi State people think they're just kind of go trying to, in their own way, go back to the Mike Leach tree or go to the Mike Leach tree to maybe recapture some of that? Maybe kind of what they thought Mike Leach was on the verge of doing. I I think that they yeah they know they're not going to be able to build an elite football team, but they might be able to build an elite offense that you know yeah. makes makes for trouble for everybody that comes there to, to play. Like I felt like Mississippi State when I was growing up, like Mississippi State under Jackie Sherrill was. And again, this might be my Arkansas-UCLA fallacy. I might go back and look at the records and be like, oh, gosh, it's not as good as I remember it. It's like demolition, man. I should have just left it in the past and let it be. But like, I remember Mississippi State under Jackie Sherrill kind of being like Tech was under Mike Leach, where man, they're probably never going to win the SEC, but they're going to win a game or two that's going to impact who does. And, yeah, and you're not going to want – nobody's going to want to play. Nobody's going to want to go there. It's kind of what they were under Dan Mullen, too, like – Dude, if you go eight and four at Mississippi State, hell, if you go seven and five, like you're you're locked in there for a while. Like Dan Mullen could have retired in Starkville. Yeah. Instead, he went to Florida where it's like, oh, you won 10 games. Well, you didn't win a conference championship. It's not good enough. And Mullen got himself fired, but I digress. Uh, so you got Clark Lee at 16, Jeff Levy at 15, Sam Pittman at 14. My how the mighty have fallen. And a guy, you know, this guy he's got ties to the OU staff. I guess technically he can be considered on the uh on the Lincoln Riley tree, Shane Beamer from South Carolina at 13. Shane Beamer strikes me as a guy that like, if he's your head coach, you can probably tolerate some of the shtick as long as you're winning. But if he's losing and on top of the fact, if he's not coaching at your school, you probably don't like Shane Beamer very much at all. I I can get that. There's like you said, shtick is really the right word. It's, it's not, it's not like to the level of like a Harbaugh, but, you can get real tired of a little Shane Beamer can go a long way for some people. Yeah. I, I personally, I mean, I, I think that I think 13s, it seems low, but then you start thinking about who's ahead of him. But I mean, his teams are usually fundamentally sound. I, I think he hasn't been able to get enough talent in there to, to really do what he wants to do. Yeah. Uh, Brad's point is Shane Beamer against ranked teams over the last three seasons. He's three and 11. Yeah. Well, I mean, Again, I guess that just depends on what your expectations for South Carolina football. I mean, to me, and I I bust Brad's chops about this, but like, you know, I don't think there's anybody more passionate, good, bad, or indifferent about South Carolina football than Brad Crawford. But like, to me, South Carolina is like, kind of like what I said about Mississippi State. Like, if you just have a winning record every year, and then maybe every three or four years, you're kind of like an, an eight, nine win team, that's probably your ceiling. You know, that's probably your ceiling in South Carolina. You know, uh, we used to we, we we still have a joke on on uh, the national desk of uh, if there's nothing else going on on a Thursday night and and South Carolina's playing, 
just follow just Brad Crawford on Twitter and watch him scream into the <laughs> void to nobody. The only, the only time I've ever uh, even remotely like tried to debate Brad on a South Carolina point, and anybody that follows this show, listens to Longhorn Blitz, follows me on Hornets 24-7 knows this, Will Muschamp's slander will not be tolerated in any way, shape, or form. And if you try to accuse Will Muschamp of being a bad football coach, I, I need to go. I feel the need to step up and defend defend the honor of one Will Muschamp. So this might be one of my downfalls, Chris. I don't know. But Sam Pittman, like to see Sam Pittman after that 9-4 and four season they had in 21 where I was in Fayetteville. And granted, that was not a great Texas team that they beat. But it looked like Sam Pittman had had some stuff figured out. Yeah, I I think the offensive coordinator changes. I, I don't know. It, I think that he had personnel that fit that system really well. Yeah. It's, it doesn't translate to other offensive systems I mean, and vice versa. I think that's why it's so hard for some teams to implement it. I, I think you have to have just the right guys, and I don't think those guys work necessarily in, in, every, in, in, in every other system you're going to find. They had some good offensive linemen. You had Traylon Burks. They had some really good running backs. Um, I man, I don't want to put this all on KJ Jefferson, but you look at most coaches, man, when it goes wrong, it's you you basically just bet on the wrong quarterback. Yeah. You know, like I I feel like I bring up OU talking points anytime you're on here, Chris, but that's you know, it's kind of like you think about Mac Brown, the Garrett Gilbert thing, you think about Gary Patterson when it went wrong at TCU, it was going all in with Sean Robinson, and that didn't work out. You know, it almost went that way for Bob Stoops at Oklahoma with Rhett Bomar. Like, it could have, that thing could have gone sideways, but it didn't because, you know, number one, Bob Stoops is a hell of a coach, but two, Paul Thompson was able to kind of hold things together, and then you caught lightning in a bottle with Sam Bradford, and, you know, you ended up playing for a national championship and winning, you know, three or four more conference championships in that in that window, and, you know, we know what he, what happened after that, but... You know, betting on the wrong quarterback at Oklahoma, I think that's why one of the guys that's going to be on this list isn't isn't the head coach at Oklahoma. I mean, when Heupel, you know, when they went all in with Trevor Knight and it just turned out that that guy had one really great game in him. And <laughs> <laughs> Dude, yeah, it, it's it's weird, man. Like, I, I even remember, and, dude, you know, you can only take, like, sourced practice reports. Even the stuff we print, at Horns 24-7, it's like, dude, okay, we're hearing this from somebody, so we're trusting somebody's eyes that gets to see what we don't. But when you hear, when you heard stuff like, you know, oh, yeah, Baker Mayfield and Doriel Green Beckham are just torching the number one defense running the scout team. Hindsight now, I'm like, yeah, I kind of believe it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's, they, that's when they probably had some substance behind it. But, dude, like Sam Pittman, if, if you'd have told me, because I remember leaving Fayetteville, gosh, it was me and Brandon Marcello, and I forget who else was with it. Was Hummer there? I forget. But it, there was like three of us waiting to get on a bus to go back to the parking garage and talking about, man, Sam Pittman's really got this thing turned around. Because do you remember the COVID year? I thought Arkansas was going over in the SEC. Yeah. And and they did, and they were really pretty much everybody except Alabama they were really competitive with. Even, they even competed with Georgia. If you'd have told me that night in Fayetteville, like, dude, uh, in just, I, I had to, I, I think I'm done buffering. Uh, but if you'd have told, if you'd have told me, if you'd have told me that night in Fayetteville, like, hey, three years from now, 
Sam Pittman's going to be a coach in the bottom quarter of the SEC. First off, I think we knew Texas and OU were going in at that point. But if you, you told me Sam Pittman would have been a, in the bottom quarter of coaches in the SEC <clears throat> and things would have gotten so bad, he'd have to bring Bobby Petrino back to be his offensive coordinator. Like, dude, I would have, I would have taken a hefty bet that that wouldn't have been the case, but that's that's where you are right now if you're Arkansas. It's not a great place yeah. to be. And, uh, I mean, I know that – I know you're a big fan of our uh, our colleague Josh Pate as well. And, it, you know, he, he brought up that it seemed like that guy just fits so well into the Arkansas culture there for a little while, like – it was just the right guy at the right place. Yeah. It's going to turn sideways the way it did as quickly as it did. It's, it's kind of shocking. You remember the 06 season A&M had, where I think they were 9-3 and three in the regular season. They, they went to the Holiday Bowl and got their brains beat in by Cal. But, like, they beat Texas, and did they beat, did they beat Oklahoma that year? I, I forget. But, like, they were, they were a 9-1 team under Fran. And Fran was one of those guys at A&M, say what you want, Aggies, but, like, he was the guy that, like, okay, Dennis Francione as the head coach of Texas A&M made sense to me. Like, I, I see the fit. And then it just, like, after that 06 season, after that win against Texas, again, if you'd have told me, hey, a year from now, that dude's going to be out of here. Yeah. No way. Like, it seems like he's finally got it figured out. And we know things went sideways and. 2007 and then he pulled the Costanza where he quit before they could fire him so uh, <laughs> uh, so the next tier of SEC coaches Chris this is kind of like it's a mix of it's kind of in that kind of with that bottom quarter where it's kind of guys with they have a lot to prove and guys that we just don't know a lot about Billy Napier at 12 Mike Elko at 11 Brent Venables at 10 Hugh Freeze at 9 where you're you've been you know but, and by the way, Chris is not a bandwagon Oklahoma fan. Chris was an Oklahoma fan during the Gary Gibbs, John Blake years. Chris remembers the, the Howard Schnellenberger year very well. Um, dude, where are you at two years in a Brent Venables? Because we've seen some good. We've seen some not so good. And I wanted to get your take on this, man. Speaking of betting on the on the wrong quarterback. Oh, thank you, CB. Yeah, I forgot. a <laughs> won 10 games in, uh, in 2006 because they counted their spring game as a win that year. That's the, most, that's the most A&M thing I've ever heard of. My bad. I, I forgot, forgot about that. <laughs> um, we're talking about betting on the wrong quarterback, man. I'm, I don't know, man. Maybe because covering Texas and being close to the Texas program, I've just got quarterback PTSD. But are you – you feel good about Jackson Arnold? Like you feel like this thing is is good to go, or you got some trepidation? I mean, I don't think I think that anybody, you know, in a year from now, whenever you guys, whenever Texas is looking at starting Arch Manning, you're still going to have some trepidation. I mean, anybody can be a bust. Anybody can be a bust. Speaking of which, wow. I mentioned him earlier, dude. I mentioned both these guys earlier. Correct me if I'm wrong, but were you not in a press box at the Alamo Dome, Renee Suite at the Alamo Dome with Jackie Sherrill? where he was watching Garrett Gilbert and the name Dan Marino was mentioned yes. in the same breath. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, when he was at Lake Travis, his senior year, I was there with, with uh, Dave Campbell's Texas football. I was an intern at the time. And I mean, he wasn't the only one. Everybody was marveling over, over, over him. It, it, you would have thought the next, it was the second coming. Jackie Sherrill coached Dan Marino at Pitt though. Like that was the one that I'm like, dude, if he's saying it, then. Yeah, this is this is it, and it was it was the furthest thing from it. While Garrett Gilbert was at Texas, but I, I proceed on the on the uh, the Jackson Arnold point. I mean, I I think even even when he struggled in that Alamo Bowl game, you could see you could see some of what everybody's so excited about. Yeah, uh, but I also think that 
we've between the, the two of us, we've seen so many hyped college quarterbacks come and go and some of them just falling flat on their face. Uh, I think until you see it in a game, until you see it at a high level in a game on a consistent basis, anybody can anybody can be a bust. Dude, like, I think we forget, like, Sam Bradford was never supposed to be the guy at OU. No. That, no. Was, it, was it Brent Rawls at that point? This Brent Rawls, but he was also supposed to carry uh, the clipboard for uh, <laughs> for Rhett Bomar, too. I yeah. mean, it was, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. That's, you know, I'm, I'm convinced, man, dude. The one I go back to always is Bill Walsh once said he had seen the next Joe Montana and it was Rick Meyer. And I'm like, dude, if Bill Walsh can get it wrong, like Bill Walsh drafted Giovanni Carmazzi instead of Tom Brady. Like if Bill Walsh can get it wrong, none of us have a prayer when it comes to judging quarterbacks. So you have to do like Bill Belich- Belichick's done this. Andy Reid's been really good about this. Uh, you know, my, actually Mike McCarthy was good about this in Green Bay. Just stockpile as much quarterback talent as you possibly can. And law of averages says one of those guys is going to work out. And for, for everything that the OU coaching staff has said about Jackson Arnold, they still went out and got Casey Thompson to come in and you know have an experienced backup. They're, they've got some kind of an insurance plan. They're not gonna they're not putting every egg into that basket. Yeah, dude. Casey Thompson is an insurance policy that Brent Venables and Seth Luttrell probably hope they don't have to cash. Oh, for sure. I mean, they, they'd love for him to uh, have a clean uniform after every game. But, uh, you know, that's there's a reason that he's there. And it's because there's there's always got to be at least a little bit of doubt until you see it. Yeah, man. It's uh, Dylan Gabriel did a really good job for OU. But I'm interested to see what the Arnold thing looks like, which, by the way, I'm just I'm just warning you now. I'm going to be probably puffing my chest out overconfident come October because Texas has a guy who started in that game before and yeah. OU has a guy who hasn't just like last year. So I'm already preparing myself to be way overconfident and then, you know, have the, the pucker factor be kicking in where my sphincters clenched uh, pretty much for three and a half, four hours on that Saturday, because it usually is when I attend to Texas. I, I've only, I've only attended. So I attended, I, I wasn't in the stadium, but I was on the fairgrounds for 2010. 2012 was my first one to cover. That was a bad Texas OU game. Uh, but other than that, dude, I've been to like good Texas OU games, like close contested Texas OU games. I've never, other than 49 nothing and 63-21, one for each team, I haven't attended many clunkers in that, in that stadium. And I'd have to, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but what would you say, like, Four of the last five have come down to the last minute. You had that run where uh, I, I want to say, okay, if I'm thinking it was the from 2014 through 2018, that was the long. So that's 14, 15, 16, 17. So that's five years. That was the longest stretch in the history of the rivalry where the games had been decided by one score, by a touchdown or less. Yeah. And I guess the 2019 game got out, it got a little. Well, you, it depends. It depends on how you want to, um, how you want to label or where you want to put the Big Twelve Championship game because that technically was a what a twelve point win for OU. Yeah, but I mean, it was, was obviously a, 20, a game. That came down. Yeah, it was a 27-27 game at the start of the fourth quarter. Right, and then the the safety happens, and yeah, Oklahoma kind of ends up running away with it at the end. Uh, but then the nineteen the nineteen game that was like a Tom Herman, Texas game in a nutshell, like 
somehow Sam Ellinger's got the ball with time left and Texas might win. You're like, dude, how the hell are they even in this? Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I remember the first half stats, like, because I, I was I was on the Texas beat at the time. Yeah. And I had tweeted out the first half stats, and I was like, just guess the score. <laughs> <laughs> and wasn't it like 17 all or something? Or yeah, it was, it was 14. It was Dude. It was way closer than the stats indicated it should that, have been. But, man, like, that's what I love about that game is, like, we've seen it the other way. Like, we've seen years where, like, Texas is dominant. Like, dude, the 2014 game was one of those. Like Texas is they're, they're owning the rushing yardage battle. Like Trevor and I got sacked like four times in the first half. Like how is Texas down by two touchdowns? Like they're, they're two dominating. I had two non-offensive touchdowns in the yeah, first. Yeah, Alex Ross, dude, the Alex Ross kickoff return and uh, the Zach Sanchez pick six. I'm I'm the old f at this point, man. I remember way too many details about Texas <laughs> OU games that like people are like Jeff. We don't care. Like that stuff happened so long. Well, CB, I'll say this: twelve nothing was one of the ugliest games ever. Like the two games that it should be against my DNA to like them. Oh one and oh four. Like if you want to know what that rivalry is all about, dude, just watch those two games. That is sixty minutes of two elite football teams just knocking the piss out of each other for 60 minutes. It's if you just love old school, gritty football, dude, that's, that's like poetry right there. And those, and watching those defenses swarm on the football. I mean, it's, it was, uh, it was back in a time when those were two of the best defensive rosters in the country. And it was obvious during those games. Think about this, Chris. Like, you think about that 04 game. Look at the amount of NFL talent on both sides of the field, right? Like, oh, you had like, they still had like Clayton and those receivers. Yeah. Uh, Adrian Peterson. Uh, most of that OU offensive line played in the NFL, that freaking defense. Oh, because OU still had like Dan Cody and some of those cats from, from the national championship year. Like, Texas, that was, it's basically the 05 team. With Cedric Benson and Derek Johnson, yeah, you know, <laughs> just a couple more first round picks thrown in. There. Yeah, dude, it's that, that's that to me. That's I don't know how you feel, man. Even though Texas lost five in a row, but the decade of, of the I would the aughts, I guess we'll call it. That to me is the golden era of, of Texas OU. Even though there were some blowouts in there, man. Oh four, oh one, oh eight. Like there, there's just even oh nine is kind of just that's kind of your textbook Texas OU game just because of how weird it was. Now, you remember Texas blocked that punt in the 09 game. They blocked that punt, and you think it's a touchdown. Well, wait a minute. Not only is it not a touchdown, it's a touchback, and OU's got the ball back. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird stuff happened, man. But uh, anyway, so you're feeling about as good as you can about – what do you think about Venables at 10 on this list of SEC coaches? I, I, I personally think it's a little low, but – then again, I mean, when you start naming off the coaches ahead of him, yeah, you can kind of understand it. But I think I think Venable still has something to prove. Obviously, I, I think winning ten games last year was was a good start, but uh, I, I think he's got to show some sustained success. I think he's done a really well, good job on the recruiting trail, but there are still some things that go wrong in games that I can attribute to head coaching. Yeah, uh, that need to be cleaned up. It's uh, you know, he he's got more experience than and I Venables I think had to take the OU job when he did because you wonder like I think Pequitkowski's in this role and maybe at this point it's by choice, but we've seen plenty of coaches over the years and it's usually defensive coordinators right whether it's it's Bud Foster, you know Mickey Andrews, 
guys like that, that they're just kind of lifer defensive coordinators and they're really good, but for whatever reason, they're, they're not head coaches. Uh, so I think Venables needed to take it, but at the same time, man, OU, it worked out for Bob Stoops, but I think people should realize now that's the exception, not the rule. You know, learning learning how to be a head coach on the fly at a place like Oklahoma is not easy. Now, we've seen that with plenty of Texas coaches where inexperienced guys and you're learning how to be a head coach, and, and that's a blue blood program is not a good spot to, to do that. Yeah, uh, I mean, going back to, you know, where Venables is, I would say he's ahead of where Sark was a year or two. Uh, I mean, he's yeah, had okay. a little more. Uh, but, I mean, not by not by a whole bunch, but I'd, I'd put him a little ahead of where. But, you know, that jump to year three is where you're going to find out, you know. Yeah, and dude, who did OU piss off in the SEC office to get the draw they did <laughs> year one? Like, well, I well, uh, as if you're a Texas fan, you got to be looking at your future there because you know that's that's the that's the 25 schedule right there. For no, dude, because remember, it, 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 this is just kind of this is the one-off year. It re, it totally resets. But uh, from what I've heard, and I've heard, I mean, I think CDC said something about this a couple of weeks ago that there's going to be one more eight-game schedule, and you've got to think they'll most just likely they kind of flip Oklahoma and Texas opponents, and and then find something more stable in the future. So basically, OU's got kind of the the Willie Fritz run in non-conference this year. Temple, then Willie Fritz's new team, Houston, then his old team, Tulane. Uh, Tennessee in Norman at Auburn the following week. Then they get a bye week, and then you go the Texas game in Dallas, South Carolina at home, at Ole Miss – I like how Maine is in there November 2nd. It's a, a bye week, so, you know, rest some guys, whatever. Then you go at Missouri, which is really interesting. Alabama at home at LSU to end the year. Yeah, I mean, that last stretch is brutal. Yeah, Bama at home in Baton Rouge. Man, Missouri's really interesting as we get into this next tier. But by the way, we're, uh, we're looking I, at... Go ahead, Chris. Going back to what you were... Going back to, I would definitely have. I I think I'd have Venables ahead of Drinkowitz. Drinkowitz hasn't really shown anything that really. I, I know he had a great year last year, but Dude, Drinkwitz, Drinkwitz scares me. He was going to get fired. Me. They were on the borderline of firing that guy. Did you watch the case their game against K State last year? The game that they definitely should have lost. Yeah, I don't, man. I can't think of very many power five head coaches that have botched an end of game situation and had it work out worse than he did. And then be as fortunate as he was. Despite your best efforts, my friend, you managed to win this game. (laughs) It's, uh, um, and yeah, you do kind of feel like the, uh, the answer is him defecate. Like the answer is a picture of him defecating on someone's grave. Cause like, yeah, if your kicker doesn't make like a 63 yard field goal, you you don't beat K State like that was a hard that's a hard game to watch. Uh, in the words of the illustrious Mike Finger, Eli Drinkwitz was pushing the hard button a lot at the end of that game. <laughs> your your third tier, your third sec, second slash third tier of SEC coaches. Yeah, Mark Stoops at eight, Drinkwitz at seven, Josh Heupel at six, Lane Kiffin at five. Man, Chris, I would. If I was doing this, listen again, this is Brad Crawford's list of 24-7 sports. Brad published this, I think, either last week or the week before. I would probably drop Drinkwitz a little bit 
And I, man, I may go higher on Josh Heupel than six. I, I may put him. I think there's a little bit of recency bias in, I mean, in our in our good friend Brad's list right there. Uh, yeah, I, I think you know the last thing you saw Drinkowitz do. Everybody's pretty hyped up on that, but let's not forget that guy was one one more bad season away from not having a job. Are we are we treating and we being the media? Are we treating? Missouri's win over Ohio State. Is this the new Tom Herman's Texas over Georgia in the Sugar Bowl? Or, yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> you beat the you beat the name. You know, you beat you beat that team, but did you really beat you know the twenty twenty three Ohio State team at full strength? Not at all. No, you didn't. So I don't. I mean, it's a it's a good win for that program, but yeah. again. You got to take it for what it's worth. And Hypo, look, let's just forget the. And I look, I've gained weight in the last 20, 20 or so years. But Josh Hypo from two thousand, like this Josh Hypo ate that Josh Hypo, and that's how that's where he is now. But man, I he's had a really interesting career path because kind of down and out at Oklahoma, right? You get it's not good to get fired from your alma mater. But the, the dude go he went actually ends up going to Mizzou with Derek uh, with uh, Derek Dooley was I think on that staff before maybe he replaced Dooley I forget, but he has that offense with Drew Locke where they're averaging like fifty a game in SEC play. That's the team Texas beat in the Texas Bowl, but Heupel had already left to take the UCF job. Yeah. He didn't coach in the bowl game. Then he goes to UCF and keeps it rolling, and then he's at Tennessee. He's got Tennessee back in the national conversation. So I don't know, man. I I kind of I kind of dig the. Am I making too much of it? I kind of dig the Josh Heupel redemption story at this point. No, I, I think, I mean, not only that, but the guy has been really open to new ideas. Like, I mean, whenever he got to UCF, he kind of hooked up with Jeff Levy and started running a little bit more of that Bryles concept system. Mm-hmm. And he kind of, he's kind of taken that and made it his own and taken that to Tennessee. And when he's got the right guys in there, man, I mean, I think betting on the wrong quarterback may have happened a little bit last year with Joe Milton, but uh, you know, okay. Can I just say this about Joe Milton? Like, do you know how far he can throw the football, Jeff? Are you aware? I texted you. Aware? I, did I not call you that morning when game day was like, you should see how far Joe Milton's throwing the ball in warmups? Like, that's all he can do. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Like, it didn't matter when Kyle Bowler did it. It didn't matter when Jamarcus Russell did it. It didn't matter when Jeff George did it. Guess what? Doesn't matter that Joe Milton can get on one knee and throw the ball through the uprights. That's not what playing quarterback is about. He's the next Jay Schrader, Jeff. Have I told that story on here? I don't. I don't know if I told that story, but like, uh, this is I don't know twenty years ago at this point. Chris's dad had a coffee table book. It was, by the way, I think this was, it was written by uh, Peter King. Shout out to Peter King. Announced, Peter King announced his retirement yesterday. It's a. Uh, that's another part of another part of my childhood. Just pour one out for it. Uh, yeah, the great Peter King, who just sometimes could get a little too far up his own ass whenever it came to, <laughs> to dude, doing things like this. It's like it's like the ultimate quarterback book, right? It's a coffee table book, and I just open it to a random page. I'm not like reading this, and Chris sees me slam the book down in anger, and he's like, "What?" I'm like, I reopen the page. I'm like, "Look at this," and it was Peter King ranking the strongest arms in NFL history, and he's like Jay Schrader at number three. I'm like, dude, that's. I love Peter King, but that's the equivalent of like, kind of like you said, that's like smelling your own farts. Like that's, you're, 
No, no. You're over. You're over. You're over analyzing it at that point. Yeah. You're overcooking your bacon. What football did you watch in your lifetime that lets you say, dude, Jay Schrader's got one of the three strongest arms in NFL history? Like if you said Randall Cunningham, Drew Bledsoe, John Elway, like, okay, I'm with you. Hell, if Perino. you want to put Cordell Stewart in it at that point, I watched yeah. him win some quarterback challenges throwing the ball 70 plus yards. Jay Schrader? Yeah. But I mean, that's it, it that kind of goes back to the Joe Milton thing. I think that everybody fell in love with the uh with the with you know the all the all the things that you can measure and yeah he didn't have any of the intangibles you need to be a, an elite quarterback even in you know that system where if you can get the ball out of your hands and you have a strong arm you've got a good chance of making it work i mean yeah. it was still just too much for him it's kind of like uh it's kind of like the wrestler that's got like the total package and then you put you know, the microphone in front of him to cut a promo and it's like oh oh this is this is not good. This is bad. This is very bad. And uh, yeah, that's the uh, basically uh, Joe Milton is like Ryback, pretty much. If you want to draw the analogy, I guess. I see, I I see that he's being compared to Uncle Rico, and in, in the uh, in the chat, which he, he could have thrown the ball over the mountains. Uh, uh, Joe Milton probably legit could throw a football over in mountains. You remember that? Uh, was it the Powerade commercial with Michael Vick where he threw a ball to the top of the Coliseum? Yeah, like, Michael Vick threw a ball to the top. No. Folks, Michael Vick did not legit throw a football to the top of the L.A. <laughs> uh, so going back to, I, yeah, I think that, I think Heupel's a little, a little undercooked on there. Yeah. Uh, I think that what he's been able to do at Tennessee is really impressive. I know that last year was a little bit of a down year, but you can't take away what that, where that program was whenever he took it over. Yeah. Where he's going to. I mean, they just come off of McDonald's, McDonald's bag gate, if you yeah. will. Uh, yes. By the way, that's why Jeremy Pruitt. Jeremy Pruitt's probably never coaching college football ever again. I, I wouldn't think. Where he's he's uh, coaching at a high school right now. We did yeah. a story not that long ago, like yeah. a, a high school he, that his dad coaches at, or something something along those lines. What is Jeremy Pruitt doing today? Let me look at the all reliable source that is Wikipedia. Uh, he was most recently a senior defensive assistant for the New York Football Giants. That's not what he's doing now. That's they have not updated that. Yeah, we, we did a story at CBS Sports uh, a few months ago. And it was uh, I remember being kind of sad. I think he's like, you know, he's got one of those jobs where he's like the assistant football coach and probably yeah. teaches drivers ed to a bunch of uninterested like fifty. Oh yeah, this is uh, on July twenty seventh of last year. DeKalb County School System announced that Pruitt had been hired as a physical education teacher at Plainview High School and would serve as a junior high boys basketball coach. Oh, that's even worse than I remember to be. <laughs> Man. Yeah, uh, you know, so like uh, he's like trying to get kids that like to play dodgeball and they're sneaking off and smoking cigarettes in the, in the parking lot. That's uh, <laughs> that's where his life is. You gotta worry about, you gotta worry about some punk ass. You, not too long ago, you were trying to game plan your defense to go against Sark's offense. Now you're trying to catch some punk ass eighth grader catching burning heaters behind the gym. <laughs> like <laughs> you're like, it's kind of time where you need to reevaluate your life at that point. <laughs> um, so that's what Jeremy Pruitt's doing. But let's get to the top of this SEC coaches list by Brad Crawford. I think this is why we're here. So you got Heupel at five. It's Lane Kiffin at five. Kalen DeBoer at four. Sark at three, Brian Kelly at two, Kirby Smart at one. And to me, 
there's no there's no debate at one. Like Kirby Smart yeah. won two national that's, championships. That's a year by itself. That's that that's a, that's we're done debating that. Yeah. It's, it's uh no, there's no reason. That's that's it's, dumb. It's 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 LeBron or Tim Duncan is the first pick in the draft. Like just hand in that you should have the card ready. Don't waste our time. Just get it over and done with. I've kind of am I crazy for and I look, man, I know he's in a no-win situation, right? Anybody the guy who was gonna follow Nick Saban is gonna be in a no-win situation. But am I crazy for wanting to put Kalen DeBoer at two on this list? I, I think that he could easily be number two on that list. Uh, I can understand why Brian Kelly's there. He's got a little more sustained success over a longer period of time. Uh, but if I were picking a coach to, to take over a program right now, I would probably take DeBoer over Kelly. Oh, for sure. And by the way, this is one of those stats that's just kind of always, it's kind of weirded me out. Brian Kelly's the winningest head coach in Notre Dame history. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not, not what I would have thought, man. That would have been like, you know, if you like, that would be like, if it Texas, like if, I don't know, like if Fred Akers was the winningest head coach and love coach Akers, but like if Fred Akers was the winningest head coach at Texas, like really, it's not Mac Brown. It's not Daryl Royal. It's Fred Akers. Okay. Well, uh, color me shocked, I guess. Um, I, I don't know, man, Brian Kelly, I he has mellowed out a lot from where he was like, you know, kind of 2016 when, I mean, I remember ha taking my binoculars in the press box and looking down at that Notre Dame sideline. And I'm like, dude, I think Brian Kelly might have a stroke during this game at some point. Like he just, like, he's just gonna have a massive brain hemorrhage. Either that, or he's going to murder Brian Van Gorder, one or the other. Um, and he fired Van Gorder. So I guess that was part of it, but. I digress. Kelly has mellowed out. I just think he's, I just feel like he's one of those guys that, I don't know if you play for him, it probably, does he just run his teams into the ground to where by the end of the year, they're just mush, you know, kind of like the way Bill Snyder used to be back in the day. I do yeah, wonder that about Ryan Kelly. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you got to wonder if that's why he hasn't had the postseason success that, you know, you might have expected. But then again, I'll say this about Kelly. There were there are a couple of years there where I watched that Notre Dame, I watched the Notre Dame team at the beginning of the year. I'm like, I, that's the, that game, that team's gonna win seven games. And then I look up, go, oh, Notre Dame's 10 and one. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. That that's wow. well, dude, there I think there's also the fallacy too that like Notre Dame plays the toughest schedule in the country. No, they don't. No, they don't. Like when you you got when your schedule is like half of it's a twelve game schedule and half of it is against the ACC. You're not playing the toughest schedule in the country. No. There was a time where you were playing the toughest schedule in the country, but um, you know, let's not pretend that this is like 2003 Gary Barnett scheduling that Notre Dame has every year. Yeah, you know, like oh yeah, we're, we're playing we're playing Florida State and uh, Miami in non conference. What I guess like the Indianapolis Colts weren't available. Like what are you doing? Here? <laughs> uh, so I would put DeBoer at two. I, I would put Kelly at three just because whether you're talking about Sark or Kiffin or Heupel, Brian Kelly's got the more proven track record. Um, and and I, you know, it, it's not me knocking Sark. I just, the trump card for me is Kalen DeBoer's gone head-to-head -head with Steve Sarkeesian twice, and he's won both games. Yeah. 
the last two postseasons. I, I, I mean, I agree with you there. Uh, he's, and, gotten, and he's gotten his team a step further than Sark has. I think it's safe to say in our uh, – one of the places we differ with Brad is that Hypo would be involved in this tier and yeah. could be a fluid, fluid member of this tier. Uh, I think, I, I you know, I would move I, – and I, Venables might be too low, but I would definitely move Drinkwitz behind Mark Stoops. And I would say Mark Stoops is probably the cutoff between the upper – crest of coaches in the conference and you know everybody in the middle and, and below is it mark stoops like I, I at the risk of making another mike leach reference mark stoops is like bizarro mike leach like kentucky you have to take kentucky seriously every year they're going to be right around seven or eight wins but they're not doing it you know throwing the ball all over the place they're doing it with like old school like they don't want to beat you 42 40 they'll they want to beat you like 13 10 and use yeah. a running game and defense and just kind of grind you into a pulp. And in Kentucky, <clears throat> Kentucky's pretty much been that for the last few years under Mark Stoops. And I mean, Mark Stoops kind of, I mean, if you think about it with with Bob and the Mike ties, he's got a little bit of that Bill Snyder tree in him. And that's kind of the mm-hmm. way they play. It's the way those old Bill Snyder teams play. Just yeah. they're not gonna beat themselves, and you're gonna have to play clean football if you want to beat Kentucky. I think Mark Stoops, I think Mark, though, the difference with him, Chris, is I think he kind of got spoiled a little bit. Uh, you know, it's weird. Like, the Snyder guys, like, and Mark Stoops, Bob's the same way. The amount, like, I always, like, just marvel in the NFL how most head coaches, you can either trace them back to, basically trace coaches back to three coaches in the NFL, right? You're either going back to, you're either going back to uh, Don Coryell, Bill Parcells, or Bill Walsh. Most often, you can trace them back to one of those three coaches. Like the underappreciated college coaching tree that I know it gets talked about, but I don't think we talk about it enough in terms of like if you really study it. Man, go start studying that Hayden Fry tree. Yeah. Go look at the dudes on that Hayden Fry coaching tree and like how far that extends. And and he helped inspire the show, coach. So, I mean, we'll put that in the tree as well. Man, uh, if only if only Hayden wouldn't have high fived Bo Whitley walking out of the locker room, he'd have had him a couple more national championships. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's a it's a tough break. I, I think it, he gets knocked in the end for it. But, I mean, you got to think the guy was loyal to his assistants, even even whenever, you know, Dauber lost the playbook at the Alamo Burger. Yeah. Or, you know, Luther made up that story about he was late for a meeting and how the, the dog saved his life and it was Quincy and you realized Luther was lying and not telling the truth. <laughs> We, we, went right, we went right off the rails there. Uh, yeah, I uh, I was actually watching some coach a couple weeks ago. We've always marveled too, like man, Hayden Fox won a national championship with you know two assistant coaches. That's pretty freaking remarkable, man. Yeah, I mean, especially he was, considering the fact like Luther's running the defense and Dauber's running the special teams. It's, it's not and, like it's not it's not like you've got like one of those one of those Oklahoma staffs back in the day where you had like Jimmy Johnson and Barry Switzer on the same staff. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, look at the facilities. I mean, he was, he was, his office neighbor was like one of the members of the faculty. Howard was upstairs. It was this I have was- told everybody the story on here about how, uh, <clears throat> when, when we lived, uh, our apartment in San Marcos, our upstairs neighbors, we would take the broom and bang on the ceiling and yell, Hey, Howard, like Hayden would do. Yeah. It's yeah. yeah, good, good stuff. Um, so if I'm re ranking these SEC coaches, actually, I was pulling up, uh, Mark Stoops and stuff and I got distracted with the Hayden Fry coaching tree. But I think we forget. 
from 01 to 03. Uh, Mark Stoops was the DB coach at Miami. So I think that gave him a pretty decent blueprint of the kind of defense he wanted to build. Yeah. Now, like, granted, you're not going to find a Sean Taylor just around the corner, but like, okay, I know what I know people talk about having a speed defense. Dude, I know what a speed defense looks like. So let me go, I'm going to start building this damn thing. Um, And then, like, if you look at Kentucky the last few years, I mean, other than five, when they were five and six during the COVID year, and you look at his first few years, like two and 10, and then five and seven, five and seven, let's take out the COVID year, right? And even then, they won their bowl game because bowl games were just trying to fill spots at that point. Seven and six, seven and six, 10 and three, eight and five, five and six during the COVID year, but take that out. 10 and three, seven and six, seven and six. Mark Stoops is Bizarro Mike Leach. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think. You perfectly. I mean, it's, there's a high floor. There's there's a ceiling for sure, but I think the floor is usually six or seven games. And at a place like Kentucky, that'll keep you your job a long time. Oh, by the way, what was your favorite moment of the Mark Stoops era at Texas A and M? The the frantic forty five minutes we spent trying to cover that story and uh, watching watching several high mem- high level CBS people almost have a an aneurysm. So we tried to uh, follow that as it went along. I. I would have loved to have been there when the plane lands in College Station and Mark Stoops doesn't get off. And like, I envision like Ross Bjork just getting on the plane. It's like, so about that job. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to have to kind of not give it to you. Well, we were following the whole thing in real time. And I, I if you ever, if you could find it, if you could, there's a way to archive it. Go back and look at those Texas A&M message boards for the 15 minutes that uh, Mark Stoops was the head coach at yeah. Texas A&M. People Dude, were losing their minds. They were not going to win the spring game that year. No, no. It was gonna, they were going to actually chart it, chalk it up as a loss. It, it's, <laughs> it's weird, man. Uh, there, granted, there was no Sandusky scandal to tie Mark Stoops to, but <clears throat> again, those were the texts that were coming through my phone. Like, Dude, is, is Mark Stoops about to get Shiano'd right here? I'm like, I think he probably he pretty much did. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a nightmare. It was, it was, it was a nightmare of a day. It came at the end of a long college football day. We'd been covering football for, you know, fourteen hours, and then that whole thing. I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to relive it all, all that much. Yeah, that was that was the same day though. The CM Punk made his return at Survivor Series though. It, it, it was, and uh, I, I managed to flip over and see see that fifteen minutes before I had to go back to my. Uh, my hellish existence that was that's how uh, i'm gonna remember that day chris forget the mark stoop stuff cm punk came back it's all it's all that yeah. matters uh jack I, I, asked, I honestly, go ahead i forgot that those two things happened on the same day until you just you just brought that up uh-huh. jack asked a question in the chat does brian kelly still seem like a weird fit at lsu it still seems out of place to me i don't know why it's awkward him down there no i mean i i think lsu is one of those places where i think some of that stuff can get overblown just I, just because the advantage you have of being the school in a state that produces a metric crap ton of NFL talent. I, I, I completely agree with you there. And I think that you got to try really hard to mess up the recruiting advantage that, that LSU has. I think it's possible, mm-hmm. but, but it, the bar, the bar is not very high to, to keep all those guys going to LSU. It's been going on for so long. We, we talked the last time I was on about, you know, places where you can still wall wall off an area Mm-hmm. And I think LSU is one of the last really successful talent beds that just is – it is so hard for another team to go into Louisiana and, and, and get one of those high-level guys. Yeah. Um, man, it kind of makes you wonder, like like a guy like Jerry DiNardo, 
like Jerry DiNardo at LSU, he goes 10 and 2 and 96, 9 and 3 and 97. LSU's a top 15 team. Then he's 4 and 7, fired 10 games into 99. It's like, dude, how did you mess that up that bad? Yeah. Like, I know we've asked Texas coaches, that's that about Texas coaches or whatever, but it's like, dude, you have an advantage that, and I mean, I've heard Nick Saban, I, I forget if it was a football life or something, but that's why Saban said he took the LSU job basically because he saw a decade plus of just how guys had screwed that job up. Like, yeah, shouldn't be that hard to have success at LSU. Go out, go out your back door, just go down to Metro New Orleans, and you can field a team that can go win seven games every year in the SEC. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, I think that the culture fit is a little bit overblown. I mean, it just, I think that LSU fans want someone that can win, and if you can do that, then no one's going to care where you came from. The the one I think there's two jobs where I would say the culture fit matters. Um, I think Auburn is one of those jobs where it matters. I, I think you've got to understand the dynamics of what you're getting into when you take that job, and I, I think Hugh Freeze does. Wait, explain explain the culture of Auburn because uh, my understanding it is is they either love you or hate you, and it doesn't matter who you are. Yeah, Auburn like what people accuse Texas of being. That's what Auburn actually is. It's, where it's, it's like there's 25 people trying to make one decision and nobody can agree on what to do, and people are just swinging it all over the place, thinking they've got the biggest one in the room, and yeah. it's it's mass chaos. It's it, it's got to be a nightmare. I every everything I've ever heard about trying to keep those people happy, it's, it just sounds like a nightmare. There, there have been I've heard of some really good coaches over the years, uh, and coaches that I think would have succeeded there turn that job down because they're like I'm not. I'm not being a part of that circus. There's no Venables, turned, Venables turned that job down uh, before he took the Oklahoma job. It, 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 man, it's one of those jobs you got. You got to know. You got to be prepared for what you're walking into. I would say the same thing about Texas A&M. Uh, you know, you look at the guys that have succeeded there. Even, even, I mean, since RC, we know A&M's kind of run the gamut of coaches and all different kinds of guys. But whether it was Francione, Mike Sherman, Mike Sherman had a nine-win season at one point there. Sumlin. Uh, and Jimbo. Jimbo was the only outsider in that group, but like Fran, obviously the, the amount of time he spent in the state of Texas was familiar with it. And I don't remember if Fran was ever at A and M or not, even as an assistant. Mike, I, I, uh, he was a he was he was a uh, a Kansas guy. He came yeah. up through state and in that area. Yeah, but his time between his time at at Texas State and TCU. Well, I'm sorry, Fran was the head coach at Southwest Texas, and then he was yes. the head coach at Texas State. I didn't get that right. I'm sorry, because Chris actually did attend Southwest Texas State University for for one for one semester <laughs> for a semester, uh, and then the name change happened. But Fran Fran seemed like a great fit at A and M, uh, and dude, we we got a lot of mileage, Chris, back in the day out of out of Dennis Francione jokes to our Aggie friends. Like we we ran those into the ground. Uh, you know, Fran Fran was kind of the guy. Fran was the hot assistant coach hire. I think people forget, man. Dennis Francione left Alabama to go be the head coach of Texas A&M. Yeah, well, that's, yeah that's that happened, kids. I saw. College, it. Yeah, explain that to somebody who started watching college football in two thousand nine. I seen it. Uh, <laughs> that happened, and then you know the Fran thing doesn't work out. They bring in Mike Sherman. Sherman had been a, an assistant coach there, so kind of understood it. He was with the Texans, and a guy that had NFL coaching experience. So you brought in like a guy with some pro knowledge. Sherman doesn't work out. You go hire Sumlin, who Sumlin was the hot assistant coach hire and a guy that had been there. And, you know, 
kind of the perfect guy with the personnel you had to take you into the SEC, and we saw what happened. Then Sumlin ends up not working out. Then you go hire Jimbo. You go hire, hey, we're just going to drop a bag for a guy that's going to championship. Yeah, and we saw how that worked out. What I would tell A&M fans about Mike Elko, and again, Elko's been an assistant there, so he knows what he's getting into. Be patient. I think Mike Elko can get A&M to a respectable level year in and year out in the SEC that I think would have A&M fans feeling good about their program where, man, they can be an 8-9 win team every year. But be patient with Mike Elko. Like, as, as they, you you can't, no sensible, and granted, what I'm about to say is going to blow people away. Like, Jeff, how can you find all these people? No sensible Aggie can look at that roster and tell me, like, yeah, every guy you took out of the portal, that's just a banger addition to your roster. Like, at some point, you're just, we saw Sartre do it year one at Texas. At some point, you're taking guys just because you need bodies. Yeah, you know? uh, I mean, going back to uh, like grading Venables, I think it's the same thing. I think you look at the portal additions they've had over the last couple of years. It, it takes a while to build a roster, and you're you can get to a certain level through the portal, but you can't. I, I, I and, and someone's probably going to prove it's wrong one of these days, but I don't think you can build a championship team just from the portal. I just don't think it's possible. I mean, we we're even seeing it with with the alma mater, man, with what GJ Kenny's dealing with the Texas State. Awesome first year, but <clears throat> when so much of your roster is made up with the portal, there's going to be a level of volatility there. That until you get whatever you know your core foundation of high school recruits, until those guys are third year sophomores, third year juniors, there's just going to be a certain level of volatility on your roster until it evens out. Speaking and, of, uh, I guess they they got the. Uh... James Madison quarterback this morning. I, I, I saw that this morning. Yeah. Uh, Reigning Southland Conference Player of the Year. Sunbelt or some, yeah, Sunbelt. Yeah, Sunbelt yeah. Um, but, you know, getting back to AM, though, you know, I, I just think I just think AM fans need to be patient. It wasn't a great recruiting year. I think they've got a guy who's a potential superstar, future NFL player in Terry Bussey. What else they added, I don't know. But, you know, there's going to be roster volatility for the first few years. I mean, that's the thing that I think the thing that that really accelerated the, the upward movement for Sark was two things. One, I think he knocked it out of the park with his initial staff. That initial staff he put together was a really good staff. Probably, honestly, Chris, in my lifetime, it's probably the best coaching staff Texas has had, top to bottom. Yeah, I, I can't disagree with that. That's uh... – I mean, he rated some. He rated some of the Saban guys, but he also went out and found yeah. the best, the best guys he could outside of that too. Yeah, a couple, a couple holdover coaches. Like it was, it was the kind of the the perfect mix because we had seen, you know, we'd seen Charlie Strong go almost exclusively outside hires, and we'd seen, and this is again, this is Aggie fans. This is why I urge patience because covering Texas, I've I've been through this, right? You know, Mac Brown when he reinvented the program post twenty ten, basically had a blank check. And hired probably the best staff he could have afforded, right? Brian Harson was a Power Five head coach. Manny Diaz was a Power Five head coach. Major Applewhite is a head coach again. Daryl Wyatt, Stacey Searles, Bo Davis, like probably the best position coaches at the time in the country. And and you got them all on your staff. You had Dwayne Aquino coaching the secondary, and you didn't get it turned around. And then Charlie kind of brought some guys from Louisville. Had one holdover Bruce Chambers and that staff. I've gone over the numbers, how terrible that staff was, just in terms of how many guys were fired after year one and then after year two. And then, you know, Tom's staff was almost pretty much almost exclusively carryover guys from U of H. 
And yeah. not all those guys were bad. You know, Chris, we between their times at Texas State, I mean, Craig Niver, Jason Washington, I mean, he had some good football coaches on that staff. But, you know. Todd Orlando is, I mean, has had his moments. I mean. Yeah. There was probably some guys that you didn't, maybe necessarily didn't need to bring with you from Houston. But Sark, man, this is, and I think this is why I don't have a problem putting Sark in the top quarter of SEC coaches just because one of his biggest strengths, and it's a strength you can't underrate. Man, your ability as a head coach to identify and hire good coaches is, it's a, it's a, it's a horrifically underrated skill. And I think that you saw a lot of that, a lot of that investment come around this last year in, in year three, where some of his guys and some of the, even some of those older Herman guys were your, were the stars of your team. I mean, guy, the older guys that have been in the program that have been developed, uh, you know, a guy like Byron Murphy, do you think he's a first round pick under the previous staff? No. Mm-mm. I, I don't think so either. No. Tavondre Sweat. Does Tavondre Sweat an out, win the Outland Trophy? No. You know, I, they, I think that, you, it, yeah, I think that the development is is definitely there. And it's because of the, the, the strong staff that he hired right off the bat. I think and the other thing, too, the that those guys had to change the mentality of that entire locker room. Yeah. The other thing, and I, I don't know, we're, we're about out of time. Trey and BK will be on here in a few minutes. But this is something that, uh, you know, I wanted to get your take on on Venables. One thing, and we, we talked about this on our Longhorn Blitz podcast, one thing that Sark has been really good at, I think one hiring, high, identifying and hiring coaches, he's been great at that. I think the other thing he's been really good at is kind of the self-evaluation and taking stock from year to year. Okay, what what was bad about this team? What needs to get fixed and how do I fix it? You know, he brought in Gary Patterson to really help PK understand all the concepts of playing, you know, that that pattern match cover four. Uh, you know, Gary Patterson, him and Pat Narduzzi kind of brought it into college football. Saban's done it too, uh, but they were really kind of at the forefront of it. And, you know, the defense was better. And you just kind of, he's kind of kept adding pieces here and there. You wanted some stability at wide receivers, coach. You bring in Chris Jackson. All the changes Sark has made to where now you look at this offseason, I think they realize, and we've seen them recruit too, whether it's the portal or high school recruiting, kind of like, okay, we need uh, we need more ed- we need some dynamic edge guys. All right, go get Trey Moore from UCSA out of the portal. Go get Colin Simmons out of Duncanville. Now I think they're realizing, you know what? One thing we can't coach, they thought it was length in the secondary. I think now what they're realizing is we need guys who are just naturally good cover guys. Because coverage skill is one of those things you can't coach. Like I love, I always love what Mike Leach's answer was, Chris. To you know, whenever he was asked about accuracy, like yeah, how do you fix a quarterback better. accuracy? Recruit better. Yeah. Like do you, you don't, you don't coach accuracy. So I, I just, I don't know where you are on Venables with that, but I just like the the fact that Sark's been able to take stock of year in and year out. Okay, what needs to get fixed, and then he's gone and fixed it. Yeah, uh, I mean, self scouting is, is you know how they. It's kind of the coach speed. Yeah, for it. but uh, I think he's I mean, he did a pretty good job from year one to year two. I mean, obviously addressing depth and, and some of the other things that were clearly a problem. Uh, I think that there's still a lot of things they, they need to work on going into this. I think the offense still plays too fast. I think that uh, they, they tax their defense unnecessarily at times and at the expense of, you know, playing sound fundamental football. Uh, I, I liked the moves from year one to year two, but. We saw, I think Stark made his biggest moves from two to two to three, and the, the jury's still out. I mean, we're gonna have to see 
what they look like next year and and you know the product on the field before I'm ready to make a, a sound judgment on that. You and I talked about it though. Um and Trey, I, I I don't know where you are on this too, but like we saw how bad Oklahoma was defensively, Venable's first year. And this would be my knock on Brian Kelly, right? Like you have how do you have access to that kind of talent in the state of Louisiana and you put a garbage defensive product on the field. But like year three, this should be the year where you've got Stutzman back. You've had guys like Canick that have had experience in that system now. You've added some portal guys. Like this should be the year, right? That OU is a top, what, a top 25, 30 ish defense it's, in the country. It's the, show, it's the show me year for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's no more excuses. Yeah. Yeah. And the only other thing, Chris, I was going to get your take on before we turn it over to Trey and BK is uh, I know Sark, when, when, when Seth Luttrell got fired at UNT, I know Sark inquired about bringing him in as an analyst. And while most guys would, you know, they're, well, they're loyal to whoever pays them, like, Seth Luttrell wearing that Texas logo on his chest, like yeah, he's probably one guy that I don't think he could do that to himself. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. I I, I appreciate a, a coach with a uh, that carries around a dip cup at all times as a per- permanent accessory, and uh, yeah. he's one of those guys. Oh, BK Chris is in line, man. Like you see Seth Luttrell, like the THSCA convention, he's walking in with his press con for his press conference. I'm not even talking like dip can in his pocket. Like he's got he's got a dip in and walking around with a spittoon. That's my kind of coach. Or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan of that. Respect. <laughs> Respect. But has OU fallen that far to where guys who could only be analysts at Texas are now the offensive coordinator at Oklahoma? The people are well, asking. He, he was uh, yeah. he was an analyst. He started off as an analyst at Oklahoma as well. Yeah. Uh, I think he was going to take one of those like rehabilitation years no matter what and kind of collect a paycheck and not have to work 90 hours a week. Uh, I, I mean, it was – it was really the right hire whenever Levy left uh, because he's already been in the system. He, he knows all the guys. Uh, I think there's something to be said for continuity going into the SEC and not just building an entire new offense. Uh, I mean, it, it made sense. The, the, the hire made sense to me. I was okay with sure. it. Yeah, I'm fascinated to see what OU is this year. I heard y'all talking about it earlier, right? I mean, they pissed somebody yeah. off in the SEC league office to get yeah. that schedule. So, like, if it was OU in the Big 12, then it'd be like, okay, 10, 11 wins. They might be right there with Texas at the top of the league. But because that schedule is what it is, and you got a new quarterback, a new coaching staff, and I just I have no idea what to expect from the Sooners in 24. Yeah, like I said, it can go a lot of different ways. I think. Yeah. If OU wins nine games against that schedule, I think you have to say that's a good year. If OU that's wins nine game. games against that schedule, they they might be a playoff team. <laughs> it could be. Oh. Yeah, could be. Uh, my parting shot today before I go, Trey, um, how how quick do you give it into the season before uh, Art Bryles makes an appearance in Starkville? Ooh. Oh, gosh. I don't know if Levy wants to bring that kind of attention to himself. So maybe yeah. only if they figured out a way to go like seven or eight no on the season, you might see Art Bryles on the sidelines just to try and ease him into that culture, you know? He has no shame about bringing him around. It, it's amazing. Like even when he knows he's going to get heat for it, he's uh, he's just decided that that's not something he's going to worry about. Was it early? Was it early last season that Bryles came to an OU game and he took a bunch of shit for it? And yeah, it's so, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was a meltdown. There was a um, <laughs> a serious meltdown among the Sooner fan base. Like game three or four, Trey. Yeah, it was yeah. early. Did Bry- did Bryles appear at an OU game after that? Because if so, that would be quite gutsy mm-hmm. by Levy. And then I expect Bryles to maybe be in Starkville by game two or three. I don't I, think I never saw him again after yeah. that. And I'm sure people were looking for him if they if they'd have found him. <laughs> 
he would have yeah. uh, he'd have been on television. Trey, you, have you uh, have you seen the Lady Killers underrated Coen Brothers movie? Agreed, underrated Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. It's Hanks. It's Marlon Wayans. Um, I'm trying to think of who else is in it, but yes, it's a good flick. I mean, Jake Jeff Levy in that movie. Jeff Levy, at the very least, violated a rule and brought his bitch to the Waffle Hut. <laughs> good reference there. Underrated reference by Jeff Howe. All right, fellas, have a good show. I'll be back. Uh, Jordan should be back tomorrow. So, Chris, thanks as always, man. Appreciate it. Hey, Great deal, Anytime, sir. guys. Great All stuff, right. guys. Thank you. you guys. Thank you.